of all of the crimes that a man can commit against another human being, murder finds itself at the top of the list, for it is in this egregious crime that we find the assault against the very essence of what makes us human, life. It's been said, a person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him. Though most non-religious but moral people take issue with the murder of an innocent for obvious reasons. As Christians, we believe that murder is not just an assault against human life, but is a depraved attack against the author of life himself, that being God. John MacArthur, commenting on this topic, said to take the life of a fellow human being is to assault the sacredness of the image of God. John Piper said that God has commanded us in Genesis 9, 6, that whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, when you murder a human, you attack God who makes every human in his image. Mark 14, as we're transitioning here from the Olivet Discourse back to the general flow of the gospel itself, this chapter is significant because what it does is it lays the framework for the greatest crime ever committed against humanity. The crime that surpasses everything else humanity has ever dreamt or thought possible, we find the framework laid in Mark 14, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. If one man murdering another is such an abhorrent sin because it robs that man of life and assaults the sacredness of the image of God, then we clearly see here the most brazen example of such an act of depravity when humanity deliberately, intentionally, willfully murders the Son of God. Initiated at the fall of man in Genesis 3, this one act of man murdering God represents the apex of man's ultimate rebellion starting back in the garden. I love the fact that when God is communicating his thoughts to us, when he's commu communicating his purposes towards us, that God uses a method by which human beings relate to very well, the art of storytelling. Now, now though when you examine the Gospel of Mark, in its most simplistic examination, it's a historical document. It's a biography of the life of Jesus written by Mark, ultimately through the eyes of Peter. But aside from that, some people, I think, mistakenly refer to it as a tragedy. When in reality, it's probably more of, I'll use a big word, a monomyth. I had a conversation with Chad Mosley, one of our elders this week, about this very concept. Chad's a, a lit teacher at Grayson High School, and we had this conversation. Does the story of Jesus fit the type of a tragedy, or is it something else? And ultimately, the conclusion to our conversation was that it does fit the characteristics of something else. A tragedy is when you see the flaws of the human being, the hero, fall. But there was never a flaw with Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate hero. Now, we'll get to the concept more in one of our B-sides, but we see the beginnings of such a story, such a narrative. And I want you, as we get into Mark 14, to imagine that you're 
reading this for the first time, that you've received this gospel as it's circulated around the churches from Mark, and you don't know anything concerning Jesus. You're a servant, you're a slave, of which Mark was specifically writing to, presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant. And you're listening to this narrative of this man from Galilee. And you've been tracking through as we have, all 13 chapters. And then you get to chapter 14. Imagine reading it for the first time to see what humanity does against Jesus. Now, as we progress through Mark's account, of the arrest, trial, execution of Jesus, we will build the case that Jesus was indeed an innocent man murdered without cause. However, and bear with me, to do this, logically speaking, I think it's helpful if we were to develop a formal definition of murder. In 1765, William Blackstone and his commentaries on the laws of England established the common law definition He said that murder occurs when a person of sound memory and discretion unlawfully kills any reasonable creature and being and under the king's peace with malice aforethought, either express or implied. Now today we define murder very simple. Murder is the unlawful killing of a human by another human with malice aforethought. First, murder as an element, as a key component, it must be unlawful. The act of murder must be committed outside of the bounds of the law. And this distinguishes murder from killings that are done under the bounds of the law, such as legal executions, justified self-defense, the killing of enemy soldiers during combat or during war. But as we'll observe over the coming weeks, the entire process by which Jesus was condemned to death was not lawful. It was unjustifiable. It was illegal. It was a charade of the highest order. So first, unlawful. Second, killing. To be considered murder, obviously, the act must result in death. Originally, we believe that life ended with cardiopulmonary arrest, the heart no longer pumping blood. Today, we define death as the irreversible cessation of all brain function as we'll examine over the coming weeks. It is completely impossible for any outcome to follow Jesus' beating, scourging, and crucifixion other than death. So it's unlawful killing of a human by another human. You see, a person must be killed by a human perpetrator. Obviously, exceptions are made when the human committing the crime doesn't fit within the formally defined medical parameters of human rationality. This is why we process lesser charges for crimes that are committed by individuals that we would determine insane or lacking full mental capacity. As we'll observe in the coming weeks, the murder of Jesus, it wasn't committed by flawed group thought or people being tricked into committing some crime that they weren't fully processing. We will see that the murder of Jesus was committed by a collection of rational, willing, able participants of sound mind with malice of forethought. The perpetrator committing the murder must act under a mindset that the legal system constitutes as malice. 
Malice today includes the following. The intent to kill, the intent to afflict grievous bodily harm short of death, but results in death, reckless indifference to an unjustifiably high risk of human life, driving your car at 130 miles an hour, you kill someone, it's risky behavior, thus it can be defined as murder. No intent, but there was murder, reckless indifference. And finally, the intent to commit a dangerous felony that results in loss of life can also be constituted as malice aforethought, as we'll observe in the next few verses. The perpetrators of Jesus' death, from the very beginning, from the onset of the crime, they operated with the clear intent to end his life, intent to kill. So chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, we read that after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, as we do, as we're traveling through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to begin with our scene of activity. Mark transitions from chapters 13 to 14 by saying that after two days, we presently find ourselves two days after the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. Since we know that the sermon itself occurred Tuesday evening before sunset, as Jesus is making his way, remember from Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, he takes a break, has this conversation, makes his way back to Bethany, which is where he's residing during this week of passion. Two days from the ending or conclusion of Tuesday places us on the Thursday of Jesus' week of passion. And don't overlook the obvious, because people get confused with the timeline as things progress throughout this particular week, mainly because the way a day was constituted to the Jews is differently than we constitute a day in the West. In the beginning, God created, and we find that within creation, evening and morning were the first day. And so the Jews began their day at sunset, 6 p.m.-ish, and then ended it the following 6 p.m. So Thursday begins at 6 p.m., and it ends at 6 p.m., which can often create some confusion when you're trying to line out a chronological timeline of these events. It should also be pointed out that after two days or after the conclusion of Thursday, Mark tells us that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would commence. Now, these two phrases, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are in many ways synonymous with one another. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day Jewish holiday marking God's supernatural deliverance of the Hebrew people from the tyranny of Egyptian captivity. In Exodus, Moses told the people to prepare provisions for their soon liberation. Get ready. It's happening. It's imminent. We're going to be delivered. God's going to supernaturally free us from our slavery in Egypt, so much so that Moses specifically gives them an instruction. As you're preparing food for the travel, as you're preparing meal, as you're preparing bread, don't mix in leaven. Now, leaven was what, was what would cause the bread to rise. And thus, it would often take more time for the leaven to set in, for the bread to, to fully uh, rise, being uh, uh, plump, precious, 
enjoyable. I love fresh bread with leaven. Oh man, nothing's better than it. Macaroni grill, the bread that they give you, love it to death. But Moses said, you don't get time. There's no time. So don't mix in leaven. Take the leaven out, cook it up. We're going to have to roll. And as a result, what they were left with was what we consider to be matzah, unleavened bread, bread that didn't rise. So in commemoration of the Exodus, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what did the Jews do? During these seven days, they would eat bread without leaven. Now, in chronology with the events that occurred in Egypt, the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is this celebration of the Jewish Exodus, the first night was referred to as Passover. It's how the Feast of Unleavened Bread started, the event that initiated the Exodus. Knowing that the 10th plague in Egypt would include the angel of death that would pass over the homes there in Egypt, killing the firstborn sons. Moses told the Hebrew people to kill a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to cover the doorpost. And it was by the blood that the angel of death would recognize a home of faith and would pass over that house, sparing the child before progressing to other homes. Thus, the first night was Passover, celebrated as Passover, the sparing of the firstborn. And to commemorate this event, the feast, Passover, it began with a dinner known as the Seder. Passover would start on Friday at 6 p.m., technically Thursday. And this places thus our scene of activity from a Western perspective, what we'll look to in a moment as actually being Wednesday evening, not Thursday. Note that this is not the first time that the chief priests and the scribes plotted to kill Jesus. Sometimes we think that this dastardly deed kind of was sporadic, spontaneous, something that occurred flippantly. Almost that they got themselves into it, the ball was rolling, they realized what's happening, it's too late. But not so. If you've been with us for any period of time through Mark, you'll note that way back in chapter 3, beginning with verse 6, we're told that early in Jesus' Galilean ministry, the religious establishment already had these intentions and inclinations. We're told that the Pharisees went out following an exchange concerning the Sabbath day, and they immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Then again, in Mark 11, verse 18, we're told that following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that the chief priests, the scribes, they heard it, they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So this has been in the works. And the only thing that's been holding back their arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus has been his incredible popularity with the people. These powerful men knew that in order to pull off the crime of the century, they would first need to secure his arrest away from the huge population, the multitudes, the mob that adored him, that followed him, that undoubtedly would come to his aid. But they were aware that this deed would be easier said than done. Trying to arrest Jesus away from the multitude would be very difficult during Passover. Why? 
Well, the population of Jerusalem had swelled to an unmanageable number of people. A couple million people packed into a very tight locale meant that the opportunity to lay a trap to catch Jesus away from people was not likely. Also, you should mention that the climate there in Jerusalem was messianic naturally, which is why they erupted into song as Jesus is making his way into the city saying, Hosanna, Hosanna the king, why? The whole feast of unleavened bread celebrated what? God supernaturally delivering the people from a tyrannical empire that had them in servitude, an empire they saw no way they could possibly revolt from. Egypt, replace it with Rome, you have the same conditions. And so Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's this messianic excitement. Could Jesus lead a revolution? Could God use Jesus to lead an exodus by which we would kick the Romans out? Not to mention, since his arrival on Sunday, Jesus has been the main attraction. John 11, verse 57, it provides an interesting detail that we should add to Mark's account. We're told that now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command. This is before everything happens. That if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might seize him. It would appear that the original intention of the religious leaders was to seize Jesus either before the feast or at the beginning of the feast. However, when they saw his popularity at the triumphal entry and they failed in their attempts to discredit his ministry through the temple ambush, they found that arresting Jesus during Passover would be ill-advised and potentially counterintuitive to act during the feast while they feared an uproar of the people. The only thing with this dynamic at play so they begin the week thinking we should arrest him, we should try him, we should execute him before things get out of control. They see his popularity, they're like, we're not gonna have an opportunity to do this during the feast, to arrest Jesus away from the people. This isn't gonna happen. However, the one trump card that they had, the one thing that could flip their plans back the other direction would be if their inside man could provide a time and a place where Jesus could be arrested without causing a stir. Now, at this point, Judas had yet to come through with this bargain. But don't mistake the reality that Judas has been working with the religious establishment for some time. It's not as though that once again Judas acted on a whim, that Judas acted impulsively. No, it would seem from Mark 9, verse 31, that Judas, whether it was just an intention within his heart or something he had already acted upon, we're told that Jesus taught his disciples saying, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Jesus tells the disciples back in chapter nine that what was already happening, what was afoot? He was being betrayed that there was negotiations, whether Judas had been approached or had done the approaching. The seed had already been sown in Judas's heart to betray the Christ. I wanna make an observation at this point that I think 
is something we'll see occurring over and over again as we continue and finish our travels in the Gospel of Mark. But it would appear to me that Jesus, before things even get out of control from our estimation, I think it's clear that he's in total control. That Jesus is in control of the entire situation. It's interesting to me that these religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but they reasoned it wouldn't be smart to do it during Passover. They should avoid the Passover. Ironically, what will we see happening at the end of the chapter? They're doing the very thing that they had planned on not doing. They had determined we shouldn't arrest him, and then they decide that they kind of arrest him anyway. We should avoid Passover, but they arrest him on Passover. And for reasons that we'll get to in the weeks to come, as the pure and spotless Lamb of God, the decision as to when Jesus would be arrested was out of their control because God had predestined that Jesus would die as the spotless Lamb of God for the sins of the world on Passover. On one side of the coin, we're going to witness over and over again in the next chapter of Mark that though there are men operating in complete free will, the predeterminative will of God is unavoidable and inescapable. Jesus is in complete control. This is going down. He's going to be crucified on Passover since the Sermon on the Mount. And before then and after then, over and over again, Jesus has seen the cross as his destiny. The Mount of Transfiguration. He began a journey to Jerusalem for this feast and for this purpose. And on three occasions, Jesus prophesied that he was going to die in Jerusalem, but be resurrected on the third day. So God is predetermining what's going down. This is happening. One side of the coin. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can intervene. Nobody can slam on the brakes. Jesus will die on the cross on Friday. But on the flip side to it, on the other side of this coin, though God's plan included and necessitated human involvement, we're going to see this over and over and over again. That in no way, shape, or form were the human players ever forced to participate. Judas, Peter, the disciples, the multitude, the religious leaders, even Pilate were all provided opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to abandon their course of action. Jesus even encourages them. It gives them a way out over and over and over again. Now, none of them do. None of them take what Jesus says or what Jesus exhorts them and acts upon it. Not one of the players in the tragedy of Jesus' death bailed. But because they were given opportunities, none of them will be able to claim coercion by the determinative will of God. Each man, each of the religious leaders, Pontius Pilate, Judas, Peter, each man will stand before God and give an account for their role as a free moral creature. Though a reality that often supersedes human understanding. We will see in this story, in this chapter specifically, a perfect illustration of God's sovereign will 
working together with man's free choice. Verse 3, and being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, that a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil spikenard. She broke the flask and she poured it on Jesus' head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves. And they said, why is this fragrant oil being wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus, he jumps into it. And he says to them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do to them good, but me you will not always have. She has done a good thing. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand. Note, to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman, what she has done, will be told as a memorial to her. Now, from the beginning, please understand that there are some who have pointed out inconsistencies between Mark's account of this story and a similar narrative, a similar exchange that you'll find in Luke chapter 7. The easy answer they're two entirely different stories. First, in Luke, the dinner host, his name is Simon, but he's a Pharisee. And the location in Luke's account is unknown. And yet, Mark introduces our host as Simon the leper, whose home was in Bethany. Now this phrase, the leper, it indicates that he was known by this former condition. And yes, I believe it's a former condition. If he was a leper, there's not a chance anyone would be eating with him. I think it's simple, rational, easy to conclude that Simon's no longer leprous. And because there was no remedy for leprosy, that Jesus had miraculously healed him at some point. I think we can reach those two conclusions logically, though our text doesn't say it. Simon the leper was a former leper because Jesus healed him. We should also point out, interestingly, that the, the word the, the leper, Simon the leper, it's a definitive article in the Greek, which indicates something interesting to me. It indicates that Mark is grammatically referencing, by saying Simon the leper, a specific person he's already introduced us to earlier in the gospel. An example of this we find all the way back into chapter one when we're told that Jesus went to the house. The house. Mark is indicating that it's a house we have already been introduced to, that we've already seen, the only thing he's already referenced. Thus, we conclude chapter two of Mark, that when, remember, the layman is lowered down through the roof, that the house is actually the house of Simon Peter, his mother-in-law. So we see examples of this already. Mark using like the leper means, hey, this is the guy that we know as the leper. Now I'm giving you his name, which is fascinating to me because the only leper that Mark mentions, we find in Mark 1 verse 40. 
Following the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's the only other leper mentioned in Mark's account. Thus, it's logical for us to conclude that Simon the leper is the guy we find in Mark 1. Now we know his name, Simon. I'm convinced that after encountering Jesus, crying out, if you are willing, you can make me, you can do it. I don't know if you're willing. Jesus healing him, telling him to go. He goes to the temple. He presents himself. He's declared clean that the man moved on with his life. He went home to his family, went home to his house, maybe his wife and his kids, that his life was restored from the leprosy he had been inflicted with. He goes home to Bethany. Two years or so is, is the, the difference here. But the other thing I like to consider is we see that he is a follower of Jesus and he's a friend of Jesus. Also, John 12 tells us that Simon the leper was the father of Judas Iscariot. And I think as we progress through the account that we're gonna connect some pieces of the puzzle to explain Judas in a bit more details. Secondly, in Luke's account, though the woman is left unnamed, Luke tells us that she was a prostitute. She was a known prostitute in the town. Mark, he leaves the identity of the woman also nameless. However, John gives us her name. The woman is none other than Mary of Bethany, who we know wasn't a former prostitute, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's a dear friend of Christ. Though the dinner is hosted by Simon the leper, it's his home. According to John, we can also see that Martha's the one doing the cooking. Lazarus is also in attendance. Mary, obviously, there as well, which is cool to me because we have no idea how Simon the leper and Mary, Martha, and John became friends. We don't know if they were related in some way. They live in the same town, whether they're acquaintances. But you know what I love about it? Is that their friendship with Jesus, the commonality that they all loved and had befriended Jesus, it was more than enough to create a common connection. It superseded any difference that might have existed. Jesus was the strand that connected them. We'll leave the thought more to a B-side. Mary of Bethany. She is, to me, one of the most interesting characters in the gospel. This woman. And she's interesting to me. She's fascinating. She's encouraging. She's an incredible example. Because Mary, without a doubt, developing a character profile, she was a lover of Jesus. She loved Jesus. And every time you see Mary mentioned, Mary of Bethany, she's doing the same thing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She had a love affair with Christ. If you recall, when Jesus was approached by one of the religious scribes, saying, teacher, can you tell me what's the greatest of the commandments? It was easy for Jesus, wasn't it? 
You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And of course, Jesus adds a second commandment. From your love for God will come a love for people. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. Mary, it seems, took Jesus's words extremely literally. As a matter of fact, you can build the case that Mary is the perfect example of someone in scripture that loved the Lord, her God, with all of her heart, with all of her soul, and with all of her mind. Mary. Mary loved Jesus with her mind. Mary was a student of scripture. In Luke chapter 10, the first time we see Mary, you'll note that what is she doing? She's sitting at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha, if you recall, is, is busy preparing the meal and getting the house ready and getting all the festivities put together, getting things ready for Jesus, the disciples, to have a smorgasbord of a meal, right? Her sister's not helping. She's just chilling out. She's sitting in the den, listening, we're told, at the feet of Jesus to Jesus teaching them the scriptures. In a room full of men, we find this woman at the feet of Jesus. Scroll open. iPad ready to take notes. She's soaking it up. She loves the word of God. She loves to hear the word of God. She loves Jesus ex expounding upon the word of God. Now here's the irony. The irony concerning Jesus' week of passion is that everyone who should have known what was happening completely missed it. The religious leaders missed it because they were willfully rejecting Jesus, who he was. They knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures pointed to Jesus. They knew the scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. But the truth is that they rejected this reality because of the implications it would have for their lives. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to submit the apostles missed it. They shouldn't have, but they did. Why? Because they were willfully rejecting what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had told them three times that he was going to what? Go to Jerusalem and die. But they ignored this reality. Why? Because it was easier for them to ignore the truth than accept the reality that Jesus had come not to fulfill their expectations. The religious leaders should have understood what was happening. They missed it. The disciples should have known, but they missed it. Mary, who's not a religious leader, she's probably illiterate, she's not very educated. This woman from Bethany, who's not even an apostle, she is the only person that seems to be understanding what this week of passion is all about. The most famous week in all of the world. No one knew what was really happening but Jesus and scripturally, Mary. Why? Jesus says that her act of coming and pouring this ointment, what was she doing? Jesus says, she has come to anoint my body for burial. Now the question we should ask is how did Mary know that? Mary attended Bible studies where Jesus told the congregation, hey, I'm gonna die in Jerusalem. After three days, I'm going to be resurrected. For the disciples, in one ear, out the other. For Mary, she's taking notes. She's thinking, okay, makes sense. So here, before Passover, knowing Jesus is going to die, what does she do? I'm going to get a little bit of a head on prepping the body for burial. She, and this is what I love. 
Mary was a disciple who heard the word. She heard what Jesus said. And then what did she do? She believed the word. And how do we know? Because she faithfully acted according to the word. Mary is a wonderful, powerful, incredible example for us all. Secondly, okay, Mary loved Jesus with her mind, the word. But we also can note that Mary loved Jesus with her heart. Mary, she's a beautiful example of a woman, a person, who knew how to cast her cares to Jesus. For the second time we see Mary in John chapter 11, following the death of Lazarus, her brother, as Jesus is making his way four days later, Mary comes running out, we're told, and she falls at the feet of Jesus again. And what does she do? We're told that she pours out her heart before the Lord. Mary expresses the depths of her grief to Jesus. She demonstrated her sorrow. She relayed her confusion. Why didn't you come sooner? Mary, she loved Jesus with such a passion that she was not afraid to bear the depths of her heart before him with reckless abandonment. Mary was willing to come to Jesus, express her heart with no hesitation, with no reservation. She is a wonderful example of what we find in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, to cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. And Mary found that to be literal. And she came and she's an example of someone who loved Jesus with her heart, not just her mind. She was truly a woman of prayer. But thirdly, Mary loved Jesus with her soul. Heart, mind, soul. Mark tells us that when finishing dinner, as Jesus sat at the table, that Mary came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask. She poured it on his head. Mary, we see, worshiped Jesus without reservation. Note what she gave. We're told it's an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Spikenard was an Indian oil that would often be mixed down with water to create perfume. It was very costly, uh, very extravagant. Uh, not a lot of people had it. The language construction of what Mark says indicates that the oil of spikenard, it wasn't watered down. This was the real deal, the real McCoy. McCoy it was the pure concentrated stuff. And it was contained in alabaster flax. Now, some of these have been uncovered through archaeological digs. They were glass vases, often in a design of a beautiful rose, sealed at the top. Thus, once it was opened, it was opened. It was held for special occasions. John tells us that she had a pound of this ointment, a pound of ointment she pours on the head of Jesus and obviously, this was very costly. Mark tells us this. Literally, what she gave was of surpassing value. We're told in the exchange to follow that what? It was worth more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was estimated to be about a day's wage for a common man. Thus, 300 denarii was the yearly salary of a normal man. Adjusted for inflation, and inflation, 
This oil, this container was about 40 grand. This was expensive stuff. There's no doubt that Mary gave to Jesus here, knowing what was coming, that she gave the thing that was most precious and most valuable. The most precious thing she owned, she gave to Jesus. But please understand that her gift, her gift was not the ointment. The ointment was purely a tool. Her gift to Jesus was her worship. She was exalting Jesus. She was glorifying Jesus. She was bringing to the king of kings the thing that was the most valuable to her. What can we really give to a God who has everything? You think about this in more simplistic terms. What can I give to dad? Anything he wants, he goes and buys. Like, what do I buy granddad? If he needs a new golf club, he already went to play it again and has it. Like, what do I do? What can I give? He's got everything he wants. If it's something he needs, he's already getting it. You ever feel that with God? Do you ever sit there during worship in kind of holy ground, thinking he's given me so much and he's God who has everything. What can I possibly do? the one thing God can't, and that's esteem something more highly than yourself. That's your worship. It's your praise. Also note how she gave. She broke the flask. She broke it. She poured it out on his head. The scene. John tells us that as it's it's running down his robes and his garments as it's making his way to, he's sitting there. He's a sop, oily mess. And Mary is wiping, washing his feet with her hair and her tears. The scene is powerful. Obviously, Mary acts with no concern for cultural norms. The act of feet washing, that was reserved for a servant, for a slave to start with. What she does here, in context to the culture, it's radical. It's powerful. It's awkward. She also acts with no concern for what anybody else thought. She gave this right for Jesus. She acted for Jesus. In a room of bystanders, her sole focus was Jesus and Jesus alone. She had no regard for what the person to the right or to the left thought. Even when they were critical, she didn't care. She had no concern for personal costs, did she? It didn't matter. This very well could have been her life savings. Some build the argument that it could be a dowry. This was it. And yet she gives it with no concern for personal cost. You know, love that seeks to bring pleasure to the object of our love without the consideration of personal cost, it's the true essence 
of first love. When you plan, fellas, the first vacation, a.k.a. the honeymoon, you go for broke, right? First love, your bride, pulling out all the stops, no concern for what it's going to cost, no concern with how I'm going to make the first house payment, no concern for, this is my bride, this is our day, spare no expense. I mean, you're even tipping the guys picking up your bags, right? And yet, isn't it true that five, six years down the road, you start to consider vacation. And a lot of other things begin to factor, right? Okay, my bride, my love, she wants to go on vacation, but, but you know, I mean, we should really replace the front door. We really got some repairs to the car. I mean, this would kind of deplete the savings. I mean, you begin at a certain point to start to factor in your decisions what it costs you. And thus, okay, you do vacation, but now it's not the Dominican Republic. It's the Redneck Riviera, right? Because that seems to be what we can swing. But first love, this love, this kind of passion, there was no, no consideration for what it would cost. Do you love Jesus in a similar way? Why she gave. We're told she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Obviously, Mary worshiped Jesus for what he had done previously, right? What, what he had done in her life already. And no doubt, she's worshiping for just simply who Jesus was. She loved Jesus. But she's worshiping Jesus for what he was about to do. And truthfully, folks, if you need a reason to worship Jesus, yes, you can worship him for what he's done. At this juncture for Mary, still future tense. For us, it's past tense. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the greatest gift anyone could ever give. Life and that more abundantly. We should worship him for that reason. For what he's done, we should worship for who he is. But I hope you worship him for what he's going to do because that's worship and faith. That as you come on Sundays and as you sit burdened by the cares and the fears and what's on the horizon, not sure how it's gonna work out, that you lay those things at his feet and you begin to declare with faith, joy and, and, and happiness and satisfaction knowing that Jesus, who has proved faithful in the past, will also prove faithful in the future. That no matter what you're facing, if he can conquer sin, hell, grave, death, he can handle your situation as well. Mary, she came and she worshiped God with her heart. She worshiped God with her mind. She worshiped God with her soul. Can the same things be said of you? Can the same description be applied to our church during the first 30 minutes of our service? That as Andy leads us in song, bringing us to the throne, that you take responsibility for what happens next. Because there's only so much we can do. Our job as the worship team 
It's to get to the throne ourselves and worship and hopefully blaze a trail for you. But once you're there, are you pouring your whole soul out? Or are you worried about what everybody thinks? What everybody might think? I take great solace and encouragement in the fact that Scripture simply tells us to, to bring to the Lord a joyful noise. It might not be an, a good noise, as some of your singing abilities indicate. It might not be in, uh, in, in key or tone or on the right pitch kind of a noise. But do you worship? Do you sing? Do you make it joyful? Mary is an incredible example to us of someone who truly loved Jesus. Gave her all. Now, next Sunday we'll dig into Jesus' response to her act of worship. We'll also look at some of the disciples' reaction as we make our way through the rest of Mark chapter 14. So Father, we thank you for your word what it says to us, in Jesus' name, amen.